Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check us out online at blisterreview.com, where, among other things, we publish in-depth and totally honest reviews of outdoor sports equipment. Last week on the podcast, we talked to Stola Merler, the co-founder and lead designer of Sweet Protection, about the critically important issue of head injuries and how helmets can mitigate the risks we take outside. Today's episode can be viewed as part two of that conversation, and we're going to focus a bit more on the future and where this is all headed. To that end, we've recruited Rob Wesson, the Senior Director of R&D at Giro, to further flesh out some of the fundamental issues surrounding head injuries, what sorts of new safety standards we can expect to see in the near future, and how helmet designs will evolve in the coming years. While there are a ton of fun things for gear geeks to nerd out about, it's easy to argue that there is no more important piece of gear for you to understand than the one you strap to your head. Rob and I cover a lot of important ground in this conversation, and you will find a detailed breakdown of the topics and the specific times at which we cover them in the show notes for this episode on Blister and on iTunes. This episode of the Blister Podcast is brought to you by Nest Bedding. More studies are showing that the quality of your sleep is directly related to the quality of your life. So even if you happen to have a cool job, the best friends, or you make a bunch of money, you won't feel all that great if you aren't well rested. And by the way, this is a super obvious point. So how come so many of us report that we aren't getting enough quality sleep? Anyway, if you'd like to literally improve the overall quality of your life and feel better every single day, you might want to consider a new mattress. Check out nestbedding.com, the affordable alternative to overpriced mattress stores, to see which of their mattresses is the best option for you. Now let's get to our conversation with Rob Wesson, the Senior Director of R&D for Giro Helmets and Goggles. We're talking today with Rob Wesson, and Rob, I'd, I'd love for you to actually talk about what it is you do. Okay, great. Well, uh, in, the, in the general sense, I am the um, Senior Director of R&D for Giro Helmets and Goggles, and that encompasses both uh, on the bike side and the snow sport side. Um, and so on a daily basis, I, I have a team of uh, engineers, industrial designers, graphic designers, uh, and a product, ma- product manager, and uh, we work as a team. So we've got a list of projects that we are uh, constantly working on, and you have to realize as a as a you know a company that manufactures product, um, you know at any given time we're working on three years of product. So we've got uh, say product that's just coming to market now that uh, you know my my team is at the factory working with quality engineers and and getting dialed to go into production. And then concurrently, they're working um, on uh, the next year's product. So that might be in the mid-cycle of a development uh, program. And then we are starting, you know, two years out, uh, looking at design concepts and researching uh, materials and design methods um, so that we can be prepared for that helmet that the consumer is going to see in in three years from now. Mm -hmm. So we have quite a bit on our plate. And uh, I kind of try to manage and, and direct some of that uh, um, some of that work. And Rob, how long have you been in this role at Giro? 
Uh, I have been in this specific role uh, almost five years now. Okay. Um, and with Jiro prior to that or in the, the R&D game, um, how long is how long you've been doing all this for in a in whatever capacity? Well, uh, I mean, head protection specifically. Yeah. Um, uh, going on six years. Okay. Uh, but prior to that, uh, I spent uh, two and a half years um, as a design engineer for a small uh, you know bike company, and then prior to that, uh, eight years as a design uh, design engineer and evaluation engineer um, at Toyota Motor Corporation. Huh. Um. And at that time, related to working on things related to um, head safety, or has that just been a newer a newer development through a long and winding design career? Uh, well, when I was at Toyota, um, I had the opportunity. Some of the the, the parts that I were was responsible for, um, I got to work with some evaluation engineers who, um, you know, this is going back a few years, were uh, really starting to investigate. Um, how cars could be uh, designed to handle what they called pedestrian uh, impacts. Hmm. So, you know, th think about drive, you know, cars driving down a city street and somebody walks out, you know, from between cars and, you know, you, you hit somebody. Um, you know, that, that person, uh, you know, through a lot of CFD or, um, you know, analysis, they've figured out, okay, if this person gets hit, on, like, on the front of a vehicle, um, they kind of roll over onto the hood and their head ends up hitting, you know, someplace on the hood or on the windshield. And, you know, at the time I was uh, a designer working on uh, windshield wiper systems. And so we were always looking at ways that we could make uh, windshield wiper systems uh, kind of break away mm -hmm. or have the, the cushion that's needed um, to, uh, uh, you know, cushion somebody if they were, if they were to hit the front of a vehicle. So that was my first introduction into kind of head injury, you know, bodily injury uh, type of uh, engineering. Um, you know, and as I said, you know, I, I left Toyota after eight years and uh, wanted to get back into the sporting goods world and, um, you know, did some designing for, for bike company and then was offered a position uh, here at Giro um, and, you know, just jumped at the opportunity. Hmm. And so let's, since we're going backward in time, um, when you were doing your academic work, was that also with a bent toward safety considerations in particular, or was that uh, was that a later development from a kind of broader design, a broader design background, um, in terms of your academic stuff? Yeah, I mean, I, I it, you know, it's interesting. My, my background, um, I actually have a degree in uh, exercise physiology mm -hmm. uh, prior to my engineering degree. So, um, you know, when I first went to school, I kind of wanted to work with athletes and uh, I kind of went down that path a little bit, um, but then decided, you know, I, I, my interests were more into the, you know, how to make a product better, how to improve equipment. And that's what led me back to engineering. So I wouldn't say that I had, uh, you know, this lifelong bent to be a helmet designer or engineer. Yeah. Um, it's certainly just the way my career has, uh, has progressed. Um, but I'm certainly, certainly pleased with where I'm at right now. Of course, in my head, it's fun to imagine the the R and D center at Giro. It's it's fun to think about like this is just kind of Willy Wonka's factory or something, uh, you know, with just zany stuff happening all over the place. Talk to me a bit about how much time maybe is spent on projects that um, we might expect to see getting rolled out next season versus kind of moonshot projects 
um, where people are just, you know, their job is to throw spaghetti at the wall and kind of see what sticks and ask kind of crazy questions. Um, talk to me a little bit about that if you can. Sure. So yeah, uh, you are correct. I mean, in any, um, given, you know, engineer's day, um, you know, a lot of it may be spent on, uh, the, the current stuff, getting, getting what you've already decided you're going to design or what's been, um, slated for design, um, you know, uh, through the process, um, you know, into the manufacturing hands and then making sure that it's being manufactured correctly, um, with the quality you want. Um, but on the front end of projects um, is where we really, that's where we get to play a little bit. And so, again, when we're looking at a helmet um, or an idea, I should say it's not even a helmet at that point, it's, it's an idea or a material, you know, we're, we're still probably three, three to four years out because you can't, you can't, you can't walk into a uh, development cycle without the material defined um, and knowing because then it, then it really hampers your, hampers your design. Um, and then you end up with a product that you probably don't want. Um, so, you know, early on, so for example, if we are, um, you know, we are already in the development cycle for helmets that will come out in two years. And those materials are chosen. Um, you know, the, the rough design is, uh, is, is kind of already set in place. And now it's just up to the designers to, you know, make it come to life. Yeah, so you can, you can imagine that... Uh, during a development cycle, that's not the time to um, be looking at new materials or new design methods. Um, that really has to happen very early, and it has to be defined um, before you get into the kind of the nuts and bolts of, of laying pen to paper or doing the CAD work. Um, and you know, because if you don't understand the material, there's no way you can say design a helmet that you know the exact thickness you need. Yeah, um, we do a lot of. Uh, simulation using simulation software um, early in the project, uh, and we can model in different materials. So you know before before the designer again you know puts pen to paper or starts working in CAD, they they know okay these are the uh, minimum thicknesses that we need in certain areas of the helmet, and uh, I have to make make my design work around kind of these uh, these guardrails. Hmm. Um, so you know. That said, you know, on the on the very front end, when we have ideas, um, you know, crazy ideas sometimes, but uh, we've got a, a full functioning uh, workshop here um, with all the tools necessary. We've got uh, four three D printers in house. Um, each one, you know, spe specifically designed to do slightly different materials with different finishes. So we have the opportunity to um, to really play around a lot. And we do, you know, our, our engineers and designers are, are encouraged to, you know, go down and spend some time in the shop and working with our shop staff um, to really kind of push push some boundaries uh, very very early in uh, an idea or ideation phase, and uh, what comes out of that um, um, is what we, you know, then we try to get into the regular product development cycle. Now, you know, we try a lot of things, and and, and like any. Um, I don't know any startup or any any company who's just really trying to push boundaries, not just do iterations. Um, you know, you're not you're not going to get a winner every time you try something. Yep. You know, so we get we have a lot of a lot of things that you know go two or three steps in, and then we find the failings, we find the shortcomings, 
Um, and we step back and we, you know, we kind of stand around and look at each other and talk about it. And, and uh, a new idea pops up and we, we head down that road. So that's, that's kind of the, the product development, um, you know, playground. You know, just thinking about um, from a very elementary level, what are the different uh, components, right, that one would have to think about, right? And so from, uh, you know, from a layman's point of view, um, there are things like fit. There are things like the protection offered by a helmet. There's the weight of the helmet, the ventilation of the helmet, the price of the helmet, um, the materials. So those would be six things. Um, are there, as a designer, what are the what are the categories I'm leaving it out, or do you not break things down into those specific? in those specific categories as I just did? Is that thinking about it the wrong way? No, no, you're on the right track. Um, the ones I would add to it would be uh, uh, certainly on the, on the bike side, aerodynamics. Yep. Um, and then, uh, you know, the one that you left out, that is uh, probably the number, number one reason why pe- people buy uh, bike helmets is the aesthetics. Mm-hmm. What does it look like? Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're uniquely aware that, uh, the first thing a person does that we, you know, when we observe uh, people buying helmets, uh, the first thing they do is they put it on their head and they say, "Where's the mirror? I need, I need to see what I look like." Yep. So pe- people are, you know, they, they they want to know. They want they want to make sure that they don't look strange. Um, that the the helmet looks right on their head. It, you know, the, the fit fit is probably uh, fit and aesthetics kind of battle sometimes because somebody. Somebody who really likes the look of a helmet, but it may not fit their head perfectly, may still buy that helmet because yeah. they like the look over the fit. But you know, I, I would go back and say, you know, the fit is probably the number one reason why. Um, you know, you need a helmet that fits you well, that's comfortable, that you will wear. Because um, we all know the safest helmet out there is the one you're actually wearing, yeah. not the one you left in your garage. Yep. <clears throat> so if 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 fit and aesthetics are actually two of the arguably most critical things, right? Um, in the sense that if, if those aren't, if a customer is not interested in liking those two elements, we don't need to worry about the materials and all of the safety features and all of the rest. But as a designer, what of all of these different, I guess we are now saying we were kind of playing with seven general elements. What are the hardest compromises for you to work with behind the scenes, right? Is it a, is it just getting a price point down uh, as best you can when you have to work with complex materials, or is it safety but having to couple that with ventilation? What What are the most difficult things that most of us probably don't understand about making helmets? Um, yeah, I'd say the uh, the compromises that sometimes that you have to make with. Uh, with materials versus ventilation, um, you know, as long you know you're trying to get a helmet that uh, you know meets the safety standards, um, but it can't you can't have vents that are massively large. Mm-hmm. Um, they it just it just won't pass the standard. Now we we've come up with you know engineering uh, ways to reinforce larger vents, but at some point you you can't. Yeah, you, you you could you could over reinforce a vent, but you know if if you're trying to get a helmet that ventilates well, for example, um, 
then you start, you know, if you keep just keep eat, excuse me, if you keep adding material, then you are adding weight. And generally that, that starts to compete uh, against each other because a person who, you know, um, for example, you know, the, the a high-end road helmet that we're making for, you know, our, our high-end uh, professional riders, um, you know, they're, they're conscious about everything. So all of those things on your list, they want the best of everything. Yep. And they, they want the safety. They want the aerodynamics. They want the ventilation. They want the looks. Um, and so I would say, you know, high-end road helmets are probably the most uh, labor-intensive, the longest lead times, um, the longest product development cycle, because you know that that at every time we do a new high-end road helmet, that it really does become like the next moonshot. Yep. We've got to improve on all of those uh, metrics in order for it to be seen as a success. Is it easier than in some ways to design a mountain bike helmet or a snow sports helmet? because you get to bump the weight up a little bit it they're just simply like customers don't demand that those helmets are coming in quite as light does that does that translate to wiggle room for you yeah it, it releases a little bit of the pressure for yeah. sure um but you know you you we have competition from the left and the right you know so yeah. we uh we we can't get lazy either so you know if we're designing a helmet say for a snow sport helmet and uh, yes, we get a little bit more wriggle room than a high-end road helmet. But you know, if, if we come in with a, a, the same price point helmet as one of our competitors, and we're 50 grams heavier, uh, that that will affect us. Hmm. You know, that that will affect sales. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we we need to be conscious of that, and we can't we can't overplay you know one feature over another so much that. Um, uh, you know, it, it's seen by the marketplace. Last week, I mentioned this quote from MIPS co-founder Peter Halden. Um, and he says, I think we'll see a huge step forward within the next five years. And um, I, I thought that was a really interesting quote. And it made me just think, well, I want to, I'm very, very curious now. I mean, where, where can we go in terms of helmet design? Um, and what fields would those advances, we've kind of, again, if we're sticking to those seven areas that we've named, if that's appropriate, where are these advances going to happen? Um, you know, um, to, again, to, yeah. to a lay person, what, can, you, can you clarify this roadmap to the future for us a little bit? To your question about uh, Peter Halden's uh, remark, um, you know, I, I've, I've talked with Peter many times, uh, we work together, um, certainly on, on the MIPS helmets that uh, we have in the Jiro brand. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I'd have to dig a little deeper, um, you know, to his comment about uh, what huge means yeah. to him. <laughs> but, uh, you know, in general, yes, I mean, uh, helmet design uh, is changing um, as we go forward. Certainly MIPS is a, uh, a shining star of that because here you have uh, researchers outside the industry who, you know, um, decided that or, you know, at some point in their research or in their schooling decided that this was an important topic and they were going to kind of figure out, uh, you know, why, why can't we do better? Uh, what, what are some of the uh, ideas or aspects of, of helmet impacts, um, you know, that, that work, are working or not working? And, 
you know, they, they, I, I truly do feel that they've done a very good job of uh, showing the science, uh, digging deep. Um, you know, and I think, you know, if you watch that video, um, I think I even, even in the video I say, you know, it, it's, it took us a couple of years to, to get to the bottom uh, with MIPS about how their system works and why it works. Hmm. Um, we, weren't, we weren't an early adopter uh, of MIPS. You know, they came to us the same time they went to other companies, and other companies had MIPS out on the market before we did. Um, we grilled those guys, and uh, we had many, many meetings before we, uh, as a collective group of helmet engineers and designers, uh, decided that, okay, it, it, all, it does make sense to us. We have the data. You know, we built our own uh, test sled, uh, different than what MIPS tests their rotation on, um, so that we could really prove out to ourselves, you know, do it ourselves in our own lab, um, test it every which way we could to really understand rotational, uh, what does rotational injury look like? So, um, you know, so, so that, that, you know, adding MIPS to a helmet, is, uh, is a pretty huge deal because, you know, six, seven years ago, there was no rotational aspect. Mm -hmm. You know, now, now you're starting to see it. Uh, I, I, think, I think you're going to see more of that in the future. Now, whether that's, you know, um, two years out or five years out, uh, I can't say. But, um, but yeah, I say it's, we're, you, got, you have very smart people working very hard to continue the improvement of, of what a helmet's supposed to do for you. We don't, we don't want to see anybody, you know, take a crash, whether they're skiing or cycling or kayaking or whatever. We don't want to see anybody hit their head and, and suffer the consequences. Um, so we are trying, we're doing our best to, uh, to come up with new ideas that uh, really, really get uh, to the heart of the matter. Are we going to see something like a, a MIPS certification or you know, if I if I decided next week to start a helmet company and started, you know, duct taping uh, the kind of rotational MIPS shell, probably I shouldn't be allowed to call that a MIPS helmet, right? So how how does this? What's going on with MIPS basically? Is this operating completely outside of the current safety standards that we have? The strings of letters and numbers that I can't remember. Um, right. Yeah, so it, I, I should I should clarify. So um, you know, MIPS is one one company's take on a rotational uh, energy management system. Mm -hmm. They are not the only player in the market right now, and um, and they you know going forward there may be others that that come up with new ideas. Mm -hmm. So um, you know, really when I say MIPS, I we should be talking about rotational energy management. There you um, go. Yeah, and uh, so right now uh, there is no standard for rotational energy management. Mm -hmm. um, all standards are based on uh, linear impacts. Mm -hmm. And um, but I I know because I've sat on committees um, that they they are happening right now. Um, you know, Europe Europe is leading the way um, on these standards. So um, you know, I I can't you know. Standards being tied to governments yeah. um, generally move slowly, but not because um, not because the people who are passionate about it and are are really working hard to uh, to move these standards forward. It's more just the system that uh, that keeps them slightly slower than they should be. Um, 
but there are many, you know, many smart um, scientists, researchers, uh, lab technicians, uh, manufacturers who are sitting in on committees, um, meeting uh, at least on a monthly basis to uh, progress, uh, you know, to this next level of, of updated standards. And so, uh, you know, from, from a rotational standpoint, um, like I said, it, Europe is leading, uh, and I, I, I would. I don't know the current status right now, but I would say you, you probably would, hopefully, we will see a standard uh, for rotation in the next uh, two years. Huh. And, and my, my hope, my hope is that, um, unlike many other things, my hope is that, you know, the United States um, or other countries uh, look to the great work that was done and, um, and adopt the standards versus trying to go down the long road of, of setting up another committee to mm -hmm. walk through a lot of, you know, a lot of stuff um, and try to come up with their own standard. Um, you know, it, 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 that, that's, that is, uh, of course, a difficult thing, but um, that's my hope. Who, who is the governing, what is the governing agency in the U.S.? Who, who is implementing, you know, who's deciding these are the new standards? Well, um, so on the bike side of things, yeah. you have the CPSC, um, the Consumer Product Safety um, Commission, and so what they have done is, you know, they 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 set up or they look at standards for every everything that's sold in the United States. Um, you know, they they're, they're checking out how much lead is in things and yeah. and uh, how safe products are, and you know, and you, you, I'm sure you've seen the like the recalls on on baby products and stuff like that. So there's, there's, a, there's a strong, you know, safety aspect of the CPSC. Um, the CPSC uh, gets, at least for the bike standard, gets almost all of their, they, they pull almost all of their data and their standard from the ASTM uh, scientific body. And that, that, those are the committee people who, you know, I, I sit on an ASTM committee and uh, I work, I help, uh, you know, move standards uh, through the STM process. But um, so on bike side, CPSC is the, the standard that you have to meet to sell a bike helmet in the United States. On the, uh, on the snow side, the, uh, there actually is no, uh, there is no, uh, I should put it, there is no uh, demand that, uh, a snow sport helmet meet uh, an ASTM um, uh, standard. The the way it's worded is a snow helmet sold in the United States must meet uh, a globally recognized standard, which there are a few. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so gen generally the ones you're going to see are the ASTM and the EN um, 1077. So those are the two standards that are, are globally recognized, and um, as long as your helmet meets one or both of those, then you are able to sell um, in the United States. Now in Europe, your helmet, your helmet can meet the ASTM, but it doesn't have to, uh, but it must meet the EN, obviously, because they're in Europe. So even different countries uh, set aside you know, different rules uh, for standards. This all sounds kind of weird and murky. Like it, I'm, you know, I, it is interesting once you start actually thinking about this stuff. I mean, who, who is setting these rules and de deciding? And I mean, I think you've, 
you've um in some of your statements you've you've hinted at you know i mean like many standards and governing bodies right that probably there's room for, i'm going to guess that there's for there to be a bit more transparency um and how to develop these things in a smart way and in a timely way that's going to be always inherently tricky it seems but um yeah it's it's i don't know it's it's interesting since my only hope is to try to demystify all of this um it sounds like you yourself might be a little bit mystified at least about some some of these elements is that would you agree with well, that or is that i i don't think i'm mystified i think <laughs> i think i i, I understand um you know, I, I understand somewhat uh, the the complexity yeah. uh, of standards, and uh, you know, I'll keep I'll keep going back. I mean, the, the people who are who are sitting on these committees, you know, want to make sure that standards are updated. Yeah. You know, um, every standard has to be uh, voted upon by the, the the members at the time that sit on these committees every five years. You know. Did, is there anything in this standard that needs to be updated? I see. You know, based on what we've learned in the past five years, what is the current state of the art? Uh -huh. What you know, what new materials have been found? You know, what what is there anything in the standard that needs to be adjusted, or or do we need to you know can we recommend something? Um, now you can do all of that work, and you can recommend uh, a change. You know, say to the CPSC, but it's then it becomes up to the CPSC people, whoever they are, you know, I've never met uh, uh, a CPSC person, but um, whoever they are, um, you know, then they, they would get together and decide, okay, are we going to adopt these recommendations and set it into law or, you know, that, that becomes our rule. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's the part of the, of the whole standards process that is, uh, I would say, maybe is mystified to me. I don't, I don't have the, the, uh, the, the view that high up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's go back and talk about Giro and some things that you guys have been rolling out and, and I, I presume continuing to work on, um, the, I, I think this is right that, um, that it was the combine helmet was yep. Giro's first helmet. And please correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, that was introducing, this is where it's the first time I think I ever saw the phrase multi-impact is that accurate that 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 Giro did that first with the combine and the the sort of soft shell? Um, no. So, yeah. Uh, so, a couple clarifications. Okay. Um, so we we do not we do not use the term multi impact. Okay. And and here and here's why. Okay. Um, because if I asked you to uh, define multi impact, your definition may be or will be different than a hundred other people that I would ask the same question. Yep. For example, what, what do you think is multi-impact? Is it two hits to your head in an hour? Is it five hits to your head in a day? Um, you know, is it, uh, you know, it just becomes pretty murky at that point. Yep. And so, you know, from, from a language standpoint, we, we, we don't call our helmets multi-impact. Okay. Now, the material itself, the combine helmet, is a hard shell helmet, and instead of having expanded polystyrene liner as its energy management material, it uses a material called vinyl nitrile or VN. And VN, if if you're familiar at all with hockey helmets, 
Mm-hmm. Um, VN is the same material that is used in many, uh, many, many uh, hockey helmets. So, um, you know, back when, prior to um, a former owner of Giro, also used to own the Easton brand. And so we, uh, we actually had helmet designers in our office and, and work closely with them. So that's kind of where that idea came from. And so we, um, we decided to try to make a helmet out of uh, VN. Huh. And again, going back to you know, throwing out crazy ideas and working through uh, multiple iterations to get it right, um, that, that is really what happened on the combine. You can't, you can't just take, you, know, you just can't slap a VN liner from a hockey helmet and slap it into a snow helmet and uh, expect it to work right out of the gate. So we had to do a lot of, a lot of engineering on that helmet. You know, if you notice, if you look at that helmet, um, you'll notice that there are different colors of VN uh, stacked together. Those are different densities. And so we had to do a lot of playing uh, around with different densities, different um, uh, configurations in the helmet where, you know, where those different densities were located um, to be able to get the helmet that we got. So a uh, long-winded question, uh, but back to your original uh, question about uh, multiple impact. Um, we don't use those words, even though the material could be considered multi-impact, because when you, when you impact VN, uh, unlike EPS, it will uh, return to its original shape, whereas when you impact EPS, you, you've crushed the beads, and they don't return to their original location. In terms of a safety and certification point of view, Aside from looking rather weird, why? And I don't, I don't know how much you've you've um, dived into hel- hockey helmets in particular. What would happen if I? Why would you advise me to not start skiing around in a hockey helmet? Basically, right? What about that technology? Say is different enough from the combine, and what a what a say the combine is calibrated, the kind of impacts it's calibrated to. Well, let's say protect a skier from. I mean, you're you're taking some hard impacts in a on an ice rink, right? Correct. So, um, are you going to let me go ski in a hockey helmet? Maybe that's my the simple way to put the. <laughs> <laughs> um, it wouldn't be the strangest thing I've seen, <laughs> but um, but no, I would say no. You do not want to go um, skiing in a hockey helmet. Um, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't designed for the sport you're using it for. Now you can say, well, it's close. I'm, you know, yeah. it's cold. I'm, you know, sometimes, you, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm from Vermont. Um, I know, I know what skiing on ice feels like and looks <laughs> like. So, um, you know, I, uh, so yeah, you could say, well, isn't it, isn't it similar? And yes, it is similar, but it's not the same. Mm-hmm. And so the way, uh, the standards are written, you know, the, um, the hockey standard is uh, has some similarities, but it definitely has some some clear differences, and um, you you know you wouldn't want to um, take it just take a hockey helmet out of the box and, and, and head out on the ski slope with it um, because it just it wouldn't it wouldn't protect you in all falls. Would it would it be the same in some falls? Maybe. Yeah. But but not in all falls. Yeah. You know the, the other example I'd be like um, you're familiar with climbing helmets. Yep. And, you know, if, if you look at a climbing helmet, there is, it looks kind of perchy. You know, there, there's a lot of material on top of your head. Yep. Well, why is that there? It's there <laughs> for rock fall. Yep. Okay. So, yeah, could, could I wear my bike helmet while I was rock climbing? Sure. 
Um, would that help if I took a, you know took a little fall off my rope and and hit the side of my head on the rock? Yeah, it would probably protect your head, okay, but it's certainly not going to do anything for a rock coming down on top of you. Yeah. So again, key key point is 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 wear the right helmet for the right sport. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Um. All right. Well, I was really close to wearing a a hockey helmet next season, <laughs> so I'm glad you talked me down. Um, well, only only if you wear it like hockey guys, and you have the chin strap hanging really loose <laughs> off your off your face. You love seeing that, just the yeah, super yeah. loose. Yeah, I want to talk to you a little bit about this um this tough topic of um you know CTE um, that has kind of we've we've started to see this more in the mainstream with respect to um, American football. Um, but we uh, very in a pretty high profile way in kind of the action sports world recently um, had the passing of Dave Mira. And I feel right. like this, uh, which is horribly sad. And, and you know, I, I think that this really has kind of foregrounded the issue to a whole community of people that probably you and I spend a lot of our time around what from a, a helmet design, someone whose job is to try to come up with better and better ways to protect the head. What, what do you, what do you do, um, with this issue, um, as a designer? Um, I, I have probably some follow-up questions for that, but, but talk sure. to me about CTE and, and action sports and, and as a designer, how you're thinking about this. Sure. Um, Again, I'll go back to uh, you know a former owner of, of Giro was also owned uh, Riddell football helmets. So mm-hmm. we are we are clearly uh, aligned and understand uh, the issue of CTE. Yeah. Um, we we you know we we worked with the Riddell uh, engineers. Um, we understand what we know kind of what they're going through and what they're trying to what they're trying to solve. Um, you know, we as a manufacturer, we we aren't medical professionals, and so we really have to rely on. The medical professionals to to help guide us here, and we, we do work with outside medical professionals. But you know, even they will tell you they don't have it one hundred percent dialed. Like they have some general understandings of what's going on, um, but the brain is is a incredibly complex uh, organ, and it's not consistent from person to person um, always. And so you know wh- what uh, you know a minor concussion. To, to one person might just be, you know, just a hard hit on the head to another person. Um, so that, you know, the, the variability, I guess, is, is the hard part is you, you can't put a, uh, a number on it and try to design around it all the time. Mm-hmm. Now, um, you know, go, going back just to, to helmets in general, um, you know, helmets, um, helmets are designed in such a way that you can, uh, you know, play a sport or do your activity um, with, uh, you know, I say that the, the highest, um, the uh, how to put it, the you can do your sport or activity with with the, the the confidence that you know if you fall, um, your head is protected. Now, protected uh, doesn't mean against any type of fall. Right. Or any speed of fall, um, you know. I, I don't know. You know. I, I think you know enough about the standards. But you know, if, if you're if you're skiing, uh, you know, if you're skiing at 80 miles an hour, yeah. You know, say you're a down, downhill ski racer, 
and you're, you know, let's just say you're going 60 miles an hour down a ski slope and you fall to the ground, you, your head is only seeing the velocity or the, the, uh, the acceleration of your head falling from, you know, the height that you stand at down to the ground. That's, that's where the standards are written. If you hit a tree at 60 miles an hour, the helmet is, the helmet will not, will not protect your head. Um, but it should also be said that your body will not survive uh, that 60 mile an hour hit to a tree. So, um, you know, th that, that's, the, that's the thing that people, I think, uh, don't understand, is that if we were to try to make a helmet to protect uh, somebody at that kind of speed into, you know, a tree or a wall, yeah. um, our, our helmets, you wouldn't be able to wear the helmet. Yep. It would be so large, so heavy, you wouldn't be able to play your sport or do your activity um, you know, with, with any ease or gracefulness. Um, plus, you may, ha you may come up with some other injuries. You, know, having, you can imagine if, if I had a helmet that was five times bigger, yes, it's going to be a safer helmet, but uh, I may injure my neck because it's so heavy. Yep. Or if I do fall, I may not be injured by a, you know, the linear impact because of all that foam, five, you know, five times more foam. The linear part may be fine, but now I've just extended kind of my leverage arm away from my center of gravity of my head, and that may cause a larger rotation in my brain. So now I'm talking about a larger, you know, rotational injury that I don't want. So, um, you know, th th those are the things we have to balance out, um, you know, to try to protect as many people as possible while they do their activity or sport. Yeah. No, it's incredible. I mean, I think the... the <laughs> The more I think about helmets and helmet design, it, it this this complex of compromises, inherent compromises, right? There's there's no such thing about like, well, let's just run over here and just start making the safer helmet than everybody else. It's like you just said. I mean, sure, that's great. You want to add weight, you want to add volume. Well, now you're just introducing other. Uh, you know, possible factors that actually might be less safe. So it, it really does seem like a rather remarkable series of compromises to balance um, and assess. Um, it sounds like your job is hard. Uh, yeah, at times. I mean, it, it's, it's very rewarding. Um, you know, we get, we get letters, um, you know, probably a two to three a month where people have, you know, written us, actually sent their helmet back to us, mm -hmm. um, said, hey, you know, I, you know, the helmet comes back and it's, it's, you know, it's either completely cracked or, or, you know, I've had helmets that were almost disintegrated. Um, just, you know, they went down on a gravel path or something and, you know, there's little pieces of rock stuck in the foam and the helmet's just cracked all over. But they said, you know, hey, you know, I got taken to the hospital. I have a slight concussion, but the doctor told me if I wasn't wearing a helmet, I'd be dead. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, you know, so we, we, we know we're doing the right thing. Um, you know, there's, there's plenty of people out there that don't believe in helmets, um, you know, believe that helmets, you know, make you more bolder so that you right. ride faster and take more chances. And, you know, you, you can, you can come up with all, all a bunch of excuses, but I know the letters that I've read, you know, these aren't those people, these people are out riding. They, you know, they weren't, um, weren't doing anything crazy and it just, an accident happened. And, uh, you know, the, the doctor has told them, uh, how important it was that they had a helmet on. Do you really, do you think that that camp, because I, I said earlier that I thought that that was, um, that that camp was 
maybe shrinking or growing quieter. The I don't wear a helmet because I think it's going to end up causing me to take greater risks. Do, do you think that's still a, a vocal uh, group? Or do you think that maybe they're kind of turning on that? Just, I realize this is anecdotal, but... Sure. Uh, and, yeah, anecdotally, I mean, yeah, I, I think that, that that exact excuse uh, starts to fall on deaf ears pretty quickly. Um, but I wouldn't say that the voice of the no helmet person is growing any less. Okay. I think I still think that there there's some people that are pretty adamant that uh, that uh, you know helmets are unnecessary. Um, and you know, uh, again, the, the, a lot of times they'll point to Europe. They'll point to how many people ride bikes in Europe. Um, you know, but if if you've ridden a bike in Europe, you also know that their infrastructure is is uh, completely different. Generally, completely different than uh, in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, drivers drivers expect to see cyclists. Yeah. They expect to see cyclists all day long and in, you know, in large numbers. So just the mindset of a driver um, is much different than in, in the U.S. Yeah. Um, you know, people in cities, you know, there's, there's protected bike lanes. Um, you know, just it's, it's amazing. It's so, totally amazing. So if somebody, you know, if somebody needs to ride two miles to their job in the morning in Europe, they probably do feel pretty darn safe to be cruising down a protected bike lane um, you know, with, with other cyclists right around them. Um, and the, the injury rate is probably very, very low in Europe. Um, but the, the fact remains like certainly here in the U S um, it's just a different, it's a different story. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the future again. Yeah. Um, does this just seems too obvious or, or the obvious answer, but where, if I'm thinking for, I'm heading to SIA, right? Four or five years from now. Smart money is that the advances we will see will be on the materials side? Or do you, would you say, I'll ask you an easy question first, because you can say yes or no and don't have to disclose any, you know, uh, sure. uh, secrets, but Smart money is on the materials side in terms of the biggest advances we're going to see in the next four to five years. Yes or no on that one? Uh, when you say materials, are you, are you, would you say totally new materials? Um, Something we've never seen before? Uh, yeah, <laughs> because now I'm curious, so I'm going to say yes. <laughs> uh, I, I would say no. Okay. Okay. So a a uh, the smart money is the primary uh, the primary difference from where we are right now and where we'll be in four to five years. It's not going to be in terms of ventilation. It's not going to be ter- in terms of aerodynamics or new um, say MIPS esque protection systems, rotational you know ways to deal with rotational forces. It's going to be continued developments in materials. Is that the smart money bet? Yeah, I would say continued development and uh, not only in the material itself, but how we use the materials, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the combination of materials or the, the design of the helmet that, uh, you know, uses the materials in the right way, in the right location, at the right time. Um, I, think, I think we're getting much better at that. We, we, we understand materials much better now, um, and we are... You know, you, you talk about like the moonshot helmet. So you're, you're constantly looking at, you know, what what material is going to give me the the the, um, the characteristics that I need 
uh, in this area. Yeah. Um, you know, I'll, I'll be perfectly honest with you, the, the, you know, a lot of the criticism that people who don't know helmets yeah. uh, throw at manufacturers is, you know, we've been using expanded polystyrene for years and years and years, and it's old technology. And um, what people don't realize, though, is uh, EPS, or expanded polystyrene, is uh, to date um, for helmets uh, the best energy management material that we have. Now, you know, I, I, and I'll go back, it's, it's, not, it's not outdated technology because if you go out and pull the bumper, the plastic bumper cover off your BMW or Mercedes or whatever car, whatever brand new car you're driving, um, there will be a, a brick of EPS running between your steel or aluminum bumper and that plastic outer uh, covering. Um, so EPS is still considered, you know, one of the best energy management materials. The other analogy I'll give to the people who say that EPS is old technology is, again, because I came from the automotive industry, uh, I'll point to cars again. You don't look at a brand new BMW or, or a Volkswagen or any, any car out there and say, oh, they're still doing stamped steel panels for the doors or the hood or the fenders. Um, you know, that, that is... That is the state of the art. That material works wonderfully. It forms great. It takes paint awesome. Yeah. It works well in crash situations. It's predictable. Um, and so that's why the automotive industry still uses it. Yeah. Now, you can buy uh, super hyper expensive you know, uh, race cars and stuff that are uh, incorporating you know, uh, high-end aluminums and carbon fibers. And yes, those, those are interesting materials. But uh, they put those cars out of the range of most people. Yep. And the same thing can be said for, for, you know, for helmets. If we were to start using exotic materials, um, we could see some gains. But at the cost, um, it, it would price most people right out of that helmet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yet another compromise, this one about price, right? Which is a very, very yeah. real thing for many people. Right. Yeah. Give me your best pitch to a potential customer about why they might want to consider checking out um, a you know something from the Giro line what are what are you guys doing and it, this isn't to say that other companies aren't doing some gun, good work or something like that but from your point of view what are what is Giro doing different or perhaps better than some of the um, the competition out there okay that's a, that's a great question. Um, there are there are some very great uh, other helmet companies out there um, that that do come out with uh, good helmets, and um, I would say for us though, um, you know, we when we design helmets and we design all of our helmets um, from the ground up, um, and you know we have a full team that works on them, and we. Based on that, you know, expertise, we are optimizing uh, every helmet that we design, regardless of price point. So, if you're in the market for a sixty-dollar, you know, skate-style um, uh, helmet, you know, that helmet has been designed, researched, and designed by us. It's been tested by us. Um, we've done all the work on it. We know that helmet inside out. Um, and we, we stand behind it, um, all the way up to, you know, our $250, uh, 
high-end road helmet or our high-end uh, ski product, uh, the range helmet, for example. Um, you know, those are all helmets that started off with an idea, um, worked through a couple years at least of development to get it into the hands of the consumer. And, um, you know, we go back to, you know, talking about safety testing and all that. I mean, those helmets, we've tested, you know, on, on some, some helmet models, you know, literally five to 700 helmets have been hit mm-hmm. um, to prove out, you know, small, medium, and large, all areas on the helmet, um, you know, we stand by those and we're confident in those. So, you know, my, my pitch to, to, to consumers is that, there are a lot of helmet companies out there. You know, every time we go to a, uh, a trade show, whether it be the, the bike trade show or the snow trade show, we walk around, we count the number of uh, booths or companies claiming to be helmet companies. And uh, I think at the last count, um, we were uh, about 107. What? Uh, 107 companies. This was at Eurobike uh, last year. Wow. So, yeah, we, we walked around the halls. And just made a mental note, okay, this booth has, has got helmets for sale. This booth's got helmets for sale. You know, some are well-known brands, and some are brands you've never heard of. Um, but uh, you walk around, and people have got a name on a helmet, um, and there, we, there was over 100, you know, over 100 brands. Out of those 100 brands, um, you know, I would say kind of worldwide, there's probably less than 15 that are, are doing uh, what we do, you know, they have a design team. They uh, do their own design work. They do their own testing. Um, I'd say that the rest of those brands are um, are companies who, you know, you, you can get on a plane today, fly over to China, visit a factory, and, and visit their what they call open mold uh, walls, where they've just got a, a whole host of helmets, um, you know, on pegs that they've created a mold for, and they're just looking for a customer. So you could walk over there, um, pick out two or three helmets, tell them to make up a sticker with your brand name on it, put it on it, and you're, you, you trust them that they've done the testing, and they have the documentation, and you are then a helmet company. Um, that's, that's not how we roll. Mm-hmm. So you know, my, my, my pitch to consumers would be, you know, uh, you know, one, buy the helmet that is right for your sport. Two, um, buy a helmet that fits you well. Obviously, three, you, you want a helmet that looks good and, and, and fits your style. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, the, the, one of the important points is buy a helmet from a, a reputable uh, helmet company that, that you trust and know has done, done the work to make sure that your helmet is, is the best it can be. What's the best question that I haven't asked you? You haven't asked me... Um, the question we get a lot, um, and I think a lot of people ask, is, you know, what's the difference? What's the difference between a $60 helmet and a $250 helmet? Good. And, um, uh, you know, my, my, the answer to that is, from a safety perspective, there's very little difference. Um, you know, when you, when you test a helmet, um, you know, we, we, we have a... We have a threshold that we have to stay below. Um, we know when we do the linear impacts on helmets, and you know we never we never release a helmet to the market if we knew if we know that the you know any any one hit on that helmet might be very close to the threshold because you've got manufacturing tolerances um, and just you know design tolerances. So 
we always have this margin of error. So we always, we always make sure that our helmets are well below uh, the threshold. And, but one helmet, you know, one helmet may, uh, and this is just for example. So one helmet may, you know, if we drop it, it may come in at, uh, let's say, 180 Gs, mm -hmm. uh, which is well below the threshold. And another helmet hit in the same location but a different design might be 160 Gs. Now, that's a 20 G difference. So, um, you know, based on that one hit, you might say, well, helmet B is, is the safer helmet. But that's not necessarily always true. Um, you know, what we like to tell people is, you know, if you can tell me exactly how you plan to fall, Yep. Um, you know, what speed you're going, um, what kind of surface you're going to impact, um, you know, how will you, you know, how will you impact, you know, is there any rotation involved? You know, if I knew all those factors, then, then I could, I could design you, uh, the really great helmet for that one fall. Um, but of course that's, that's unrealistic. Hmm. So, you know, all of our helmets, whether it's a $60 helmet or $250 helmet, you know, uh, pass the standard and are safe helmets. And they're all going to be within, you know, a small margin of each other. Um, not until you start to really increase, you know, in the current state of the art with uh, EPS or EPP helmets. Um, not until you really start to increase the thickness of the helmet will you start to see a larger, um, larger movement in, um, larger movement in the in the the G uh, results that you get. Yep. You gotta go. You gotta go bigger. If you gotta you, go bigger. Mm -hmm. You gotta go bigger. Um, yeah, you're just, you're you know just like in yeah, well going back to automotive, just like in automotive, you know you're you're looking for that crushable zone, right? So yep. you you have to do that with really good material and increased distance. You know you're trying to you're trying to lengthen out that crush zone. Yeah. And uh, so you gotta go bigger if you want to really reduce the uh, um, the G level. And you know. But, and like I said, going back to the very beginning of the podcast where, uh, you know, the number one thing people do is they, they walk into a store, they put a hell on their head and they ask for the mirror. And if it is too big, um, they just, they won't wear it. Yeah. They, they'll put it back on the shelf and they'll, they'll, they'll pick another helmet. So you, you've got to be in the, you got to be in the zone, I should say. You can't be too far out um, of the zone of your competitors at some point um, if you're going to be viable for, for a consumer. Or we just need to do a better job of trying to communicate that. And guess what? Like, I love low profile helmets, right? From, yeah, a, from a looks point of view. And it's like, that is just, I think, maybe something to understand that. And it's also, again, why I'm glad I'm not a helmet designer. But, you know, we everybody clamoring for low profile helmets. It's like, well, that's great if you realize, you know, go back and listen to basically everything you've just said for the last hour. Um, this is kind of at odds with trying to actually keep a head safe, right? Yeah. In a matter of speaking, sure. The, uh, you know, the, the, the other, the other point following up on my, uh, my answer there on, on cost of helmets is, uh, you know, you, um, for example, if you if you have a very uh, standard um, like skate style helmet with a plastic outer shell, yep. with a EPS liner that's molded separately and then gets uh, assembled into the helmet, um, you know those those can be you know forty to even thirty to sixty bucks. Yep. Um, you know that that helmet is is safe. Um, 
And, you know, if you were to fall and take a hit uh, with that helmet, um, it would be just as safe as a helmet that we create that's at the much higher price point. What you're getting at the higher price point is um, generally all those other attributes we talked about. You know, um, we spent time in the wind tunnel testing it for aerodynamics. You know, we did a lot of thermodynamic testing um, to make sure that the venting uh, worked really well. Uh, you know, we've got the... Uh, uh, all the tooling that goes into making a highly ventilated helmet. Yeah, when, when, when people want more features, um, you know, the, the, the time is really, the engineering time yeah. to realize those features is, is really what's, what's uh, driving cost. So it's time, time to do the research, time to do the design, plus also the, the time to make the helmet. Actually in production, you know, that helmet is, is very labor intensive to make. Um, versus uh, a machine that can basically run automatically, uh, pumping out very, very uh, uh, simple shapes, so to speak. That's really useful, I think, um, to understand that it's not, you know, simplistically, I think sometimes I've thought, well, are you merely getting more bells and whistles when you are getting into a, uh, a more expensive helmet? And it's like, well, Sort of, but that is also a more complex design process. Don't underestimate that, right? Um, right. Which starts to, it's not just that you're gluing on, you know, gluing on a couple of features onto a $40 skate helmet. It's that the whole process is now getting overhauled and revamped, and there's a cost to that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, there, there's there's a difference in projects. Like, you know, if we're say say we're coming out, we want to come out with a new a new shape, uh, but at that sixty dollar price point, well, that's a that's a big that's a totally different exercise than uh, the the process of okay, we're starting our brand new, you know, high end road helmet for the professional that'll come out in four years from now. Um, we've got to do some research. Um, and we start spending all that time really looking at all of those aspects, all of those attributes of that helmet and, and, and slowly, you know, uh, getting to work together. Um, you know, I, I'd say that's, you know, we, a good example of that would be our, our the new, uh, uh, ski race helmet that we have coming out this year called the Avance. Hmm. And, uh, you know, that. We haven't. We we've had a ski race helmet in our line for a long time, but we haven't really spent much time on it. And uh, you know, a few years ago, we made the decision. Okay, we we want to come back into race. And uh, what are we going to do to you know, similar to what we do on the high end road side, is you know, what 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 are we going to bring to the table that that is really going to matter? Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, that's a ex- good example of you know that helmet um, is probably you know probably one of our most advanced. It is our most advanced. Uh, ski helmet to date um, you know we worked um, we have a new rotational energy management system um, in that helmet that uh, we um, we developed with MIPS um, so it's going to it'll look a lot different than what you're used to seeing uh, from MIPS but that's a, that's a that was a project in itself that was a you know kind of an advanced advanced project um you know, that was happening off to the side to try to figure out that technology before we even got into the design of the helmet. Um, you know, and that, that helmet is, uh, you know, it's, it's going back to your, you know, talking about 
combining materials and uh, and putting materials in the right location at the right place. Um, you know, we're using a, a high-end carbon uh, material uh, laminated to another material called a Negra, um, and uh, you know the combination of these these two materials together with the uh, a dual-density EPP liner um, with this uh, special MIPS uh, rotational energy management system. You know that was a that was a huge development project, and um, you know those materials are not cheap and. Uh, you know, it may shock you, but this this helmet will will retail for close to six hundred dollars. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I've, I'm no longer shocked <clears throat> to hear. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, having thought about helmets a lot harder in the last month or so, I'm I'm no longer shocked to hear of um, these higher price tags and where where they're coming from. How the hell do you guys deal with the whole fit issue? I mean, do you? Do you run around on the streets of New York just with a tape measure, like grabbing averages from, you know, a thousand people's head size or shape? I mean, this one seems kind of simple and sort of impossible at the same time to me. Um, do you decide you're going to, as a brand, air a certain way? Um, how do you think about head shapes and fit? Uh, well, it, it's a bit of a black art. Um... You know, we've we've got uh, you know, Giro has been around since 1985, mm -hmm. so just celebrated you know 30 years. And um, you know, I have I have designers and engineers on my team who have been here over 20 of those years. So uh, the knowledge base uh, is there, and you know, we t we take our fit very seriously, and our head forms don't our head forms don't change. Um, I, I want to say we, we don't make the decision to change our head forms very lightly. Yeah. That that's a that's a big decision, and um, you know it's 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 based on um, it really has to be based on some some hard facts about uh, you know our head shapes changing um, or again coming down to you know working with new materials or new uh, you know technologies like for MIPS for example. Um, you know, th those cause us to have to reevaluate how a helmet fits hmm. uh, when you start putting stuff, in, you know, up against the head uh, on the inside of the helmet. Um, but we do have, uh, you know, 3D scanning technology. So we have been scanning. Um, you know, basically everybody in this building has had their head scanned. So we have a, <laughs> you know, we've got a database uh, of head scans that at least gives us an opportunity to, to look at our helmet fit. And, and make sure that uh, we're still uh, confident in, in, you know, what we call our Jiro head form. Hmm. And, uh, you know, again, if, if, if we feel like there's a, there's a change necessary or we're getting feedback from our reps, um, you know, then, then we'll, we'll, we'll take that under consideration. Um, but, uh, you know, we, there has been some missteps in the past. You know, we have had helmets that people have complained don't fit quite right. And, uh, you know, when you, when you go back and look at the, the history, you know, something, you know, be honest with you, something was missed. We 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 didn't didn't move a surface, you know, far far enough uh, in the design phase, and uh, we missed it in the check phase. So uh, those are things we take seriously, and we you know we put processes in place that uh, we don't want to ever have a helmet that doesn't fit. Hmm. And so, do you across the line 
and I don't, I don't know how you guys think about this sort of like, well, there's sort of five di- roughly people fall into one of five different head shapes or something, or one of two. Do you guys try across the Jiro line? Say talking about say bike helmets, would you try to design for these different kind of types? Um, or is it like, nah, we kind of stick closer to, as you put it, the, the Jiro head form. Um, yeah, there, the, the reality is that we can't, uh, like if you were, to, if you were to look at like the, the North American, you know, uh, head shape, yeah. um, you know, we, we will, we'll stick to our tried and true head shape, which is, you know, is going to be slightly different than, you know, our sister company, Bell, mm-hmm. uh, Bell has a slightly different head, head, uh, form than we do. Um, you know, the head form of our competitors is going to be slightly different, um, or it could be exactly the same because we, we know we've been copied in the past. Hmm. But, um, you know, to answer your question, so we're not going to venture out and try to make uh, new head form shapes for all, you know, all the different types of head shapes that are out there. But we do, uh, we do, do make a, uh, what we call an Asian fit uh, head form. And uh, knowing that, um, you know, Asian heads are uh, very, you know, not very different, but, you know, different enough that um, what we were finding is that, uh, you know, um, people in Asian countries wanted to buy Jiro helmets. But, you know, if you measure, so if I measure my head, and I'm a 57 centimeter, uh, you know, around my head, and if you were to measure an, an Asian head at 57 centimeters, we would not fit the same helmet because our head shape is different. So what we were finding was the Asians uh, wanted to wear Jiro, but they had to buy a size up to be able to fit into the helmet. And that's just to get their head in. That's not, that's not saying anything about whether it's comfortable or not. That's just to get the head in the helmet. And so we went back and, um, you know, took a look at uh, data, um, that we acquired for, um, you know, the, the Asian, uh, head and, uh, you know, actually came out, we have actually a lot of our helmets actually come in an Asian fit. Um, they're only available in Asia. But uh, that that would be an example of, of of going after a different size type of head form to to meet that need. Well, Rob, thanks so much again for taking the time, and um, uh, yeah, I I think we've all once again learned a lot, and um, uh, it's uh, it feels better knowing that we might not be as stupid when it comes to trying to figure out how to keep our heads and brains safe. So appreciate that. Yeah, it's been my pleasure talking with you, Jonathan. All right, you take care. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks to Rob Wesson for the conversation, to our strikingly handsome audio engineer, Justin Bob, who I'm really hoping will reunite soon with one of the reggae bands he played with in high school and college. J-Bob, what were the name of those bands? Abu and the Juice Band was one, and another was called Plant the Corn. I miss me some Plant the Corn. Um, anyway, thanks also to Nest Bedding for sponsoring this episode. Be sure to go to nestbedding.com to start getting a better night's sleep. Till next time, head over to blisterreview.com to see what we're up to there. Subscribe to the Blister Podcast on iTunes, and we'll catch you next week on the Blister Podcast.